this episode of the Critical Oxygen Podcast. And I think for me, the key point is that, as you alluded to, if someone starts below this critical speed, critical power, but over time, via whatever glycogen depletion, like changes in motor unit recruitment patterns, other elements of fatigue, cause that this threshold to decay, and then all of a sudden we're running above it, like you said, we're running on borrowed time. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Critical Oxygen Podcast, where we help you optimize your physiology and maximize your athletic potential. I'm your host, Phil Batterson, and today we're joined by continuing guest host, Jonah Rosner, where we're going to discuss resilience and durability. Jonah, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Phil. Good to be back on. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I say this often, uh, you know, within like the, the podcast, but it's been, you know, probably only a week or two since you've heard me talk to Jonah last. But for him and I, I think it's been like three or four weeks now. It seems like we've, we've been apart, you know, for for a really long it's time. It's been a while. <laughs> um, so we were just catching up and we were talking about Jonah's running a, what I would call a pretty successful physiology uh, assessment business out of New York. And we were talking about how to actually make these types of businesses uh, scalable, how to make them actually, you know, something that you can turn into more of a, a career in a business versus like a side hustle and stuff. And um, so I wanted to pick up on this conversation because I think this would be very useful for a lot of uh, coaches, athletes, maybe, uh, you know, academics who are trying to go into the private sector. Um, so Jonah, if you want to recap kind of what you were telling me, uh, you know, you business is going good, but what are some of like the challenges that you're running into? Yeah, no, business is definitely going well from an interest standpoint. And I think you and I spoke offline earlier, like the main issue, I think, with any kind of like this physiological testing business, especially when you're by yourself, is scaling. Mm-hmm. Like every test obviously takes a lot of um, time to conduct, but then also post analysis, going over the results, giving the results to the clientele. So like, I could pretty much probably do like three to four tests a week tops just because of all the na- analysis and everything. So you're really limited by just the sheer volume of the tests, which makes it hard to scale, um, I would say, and then the te- from the technology standpoint as well. So I think like the major issue anyone's going to run into doing this is how do I scale? Like how do I conduct enough tests to make it actually financially stable? Mm-hmm. And that's hard because right now, like a lot of like the fitness or whatever, like performance-related businesses that I think are having a large amount of success are pretty much 100% remote. So remote testing is difficult to do. But I think there is potentially something there. So I think it's going to be like the way you would scale it as a combination of the in-person testing combined with some remote element as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I we're on the exact same page. So um, for those of you who don't know, I am the staff physiologist for Moxie Monitor, and we kind of just released a remote physiology testing uh, model. Um, where what we can do is if you have a moxie monitor or you can rent a moxie monitor, a heart rate monitor and a stationary bike right now, we're kind of limited to only bikes, but we're going to extend this into treadmills. Um, you can do a sprint plus a standardized ramp test, and then you can get all of your variables out of that. You can get your VO2 max, VLA max, your uh, maximal lactate steady state. You can get uh, substrate oxidation. You can get all your zoning, which is you know, as Jonah and I have t- discussed on the podcast and I've discussed with others is uh, z- precise zoning is super important if you're trying to elicit the correct physiological adaptations. And then on top of that, you can also get substrate oxidation or some estimate of substrate yeah, I was oxidation. Say, how would you get substrate oxidation for that? Yeah. So, so the, again, so I was, 
I was trying to explain this offline is uh, there's a lot smarter people in terms of like mm-hmm. the mathematical modeling world who are doing this. Um, but the, and this is where trainalize comes in. So they have three models that they essentially match your physiology to. So after your sprint test and your step test, you have a curve that it has your moxie, your SMO2 stuff, your heart rate, and your power output. It takes those variables and it essentially matches it to a metabolic model that was made, I believe, by some uh, you know German physiology group. Um, and from there, they can start to match how your physiology really matches whatever metabolic model that they're that they're putting it towards. And then given that that you know metabolic model, obviously there's assumptions like you know built into all of these, but for not having to prick your finger, you know, to do lactate testing and other things like that, and without having to have a metabolic device, which can be expensive, especially you know upon startup, um, it gives you a pretty uh, a pretty cool model of being able to say, okay, well, um, at a certain power output, how much carbohydrate am I oxidizing? And then from there, you can start to build out, okay, well, if I'm going to race at this power output and I'm going to be oxidizing 150 grams of carbohydrate then in order to delay muscle glycogen depletion, I'm going to have to take in as much carbohydrate as possible. Mm. So you can start to get an idea and you know, it's, it's probably not perfect, but it's, it's this idea between like accurate and precise. It's probably pretty good in terms of like the accuracy and repeatability. Like it's going to tell you, you know, the, the same things over and over because you're doing the same test. It's just the precision might be a little bit different compared to, you know, a true, uh, you know, meta- metabolic test. But we also know that, you know, depending on the calibration of a metabolic test, uh, lactate values also can be, you know, crazy all over the place, you know, depending on, you know, how you're measuring them, if you get sweat in the sample, uh, other things like that. So, um, so I would argue that, you know, this remote testing gives people the opportunity to start to track their physiology, start to, uh, you know, change their zoning and do it on a, on a regular basis. Right. And, you know, from a, from a a coaching model or a physiology assessment model perspective, what I would recommend to people is say, okay, well, what you're going to want to do is you have individuals come in like once or twice a year to do in-person testing. And then during the in-between, what they're doing is they're going to do the remote assessment at home. And you follow the same kind of assessment that you would do in person, just with extra uh, you know, extra stuff that you're adding. Maybe you want to la- add lactate to the model. Maybe you want to do your force plate testing to the model. Maybe you want to do other things like that. And then that will give people, you know, both that that in person, you know, sort of like like actual go to a lab, do the testing. But then from a sustainability and a business standpoint, then you have the individuals follow up with the tests over and over and over. And then that gives you the ability as a coach to then track physiology and zoning over time to see, oh, how is my intervention actually changing this person's physiology and how are, how are we responding to that? Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, it reminds me a lot of some of the models I'm doing now where someone will come in for initial testing. We'll do some coaching on them. And in between, like, let's say we don't test again for however many months, we'll do sort of time trial related testing or performance just to have some gauge of like potential adaptation if you're mm-hmm. improving over time and this actually could be like a more accurate way to go about that it's just actually an element of like the physiological response yeah yeah exactly that's what i get excited about is you know whenever i talk to coaches i ask them oh so how are you testing and assessing your athletes and they're like well i do a lot of uh 
what do they say? I do a lot of like FTP testing. I'm like, okay, well, FTP is good. Mm. But if you're only doing, you know, like a 30 minute test, that's your 30 minute FTP, right? And you can try to extrapolate out to an hour, maybe a little bit lower, other things like that. But even, but even then, that's only one test. And it's really only telling you how you're responding on that given day, as opposed to if you're doing, you know, like the physiological modeling, like I'm talking about, you're actually getting all of your zones, you're getting your recovery zone, your zone two training, which we all know is super important for, you know, to, to get those adaptations um, for, you know, more endurance based work, uh, you get your threshold stuff, your VO two max, and then your sprint power as well. So you get you get the whole gambit of all of the different um, all of the different zones, as opposed to if you're just doing FTP, you really only get one zone, right? Or one delineation. You get that 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 critical power or FTP or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, no, it's probably a good um, good segue to some of the durability stuff we want to talk about. The fatigue resistance in regards to the half an hour versus, for example, exercising for two hours. Um, yeah. How those thresholds may not always be the best indicator of who's going to have the highest performance because those other factors at play. But no, I think it's a really interesting point too. Like I'm a big fan of critical speed or critical power with some of the athletes I work with, but it's one very small piece of the puzzle, as mm-hmm. you're alluding to. Like someone could have pretty good or pretty decent critical power metrics, but we're still missing across the intensity domain or like time intensity domain, a lot of other metrics that are valuable based on the event demands or the sport demands. So just having a holistic athlete profile is going to give you a, not only like a better indicator of what they need to work on, but then remeasure that stuff over time. So you're actually getting the adaptations you're looking for and ensuring that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think too, with, with the ability to do this remote testing as well, you start to see in terms of durability, I think this remote testing also gives us uh, an ability to maybe test durability as well, because now if testing is only $70 per analysis versus I don't know, 350 to $500 per analysis, then we can start to say, oh, well, I'm going to have somebody do this physiological analysis before and after two hours worth of work, right? And then you can say, okay, well, how much does stuff fall off? And then you can start to actually quantify resilience. So before we actually jump into that, let's actually define resilience or uh, in some circles, it'll be called durability. Um, It's it's an athlete's uh, re- resilience or resistance to uh, uh, fatigue over time, and the the main the main way that this is generally seen is that if you measure somebody's or an athlete's critical speed or critical power before and after a certain amount of work, so two hours, four hours, a certain amount of uh, energy expenditure, how much that athlete's critical power or critical speed falls is what their resilience or durability is. And obviously, the the better your resilience and durability, the lower, the less fall in critical speed and critical power you're actually going to have. Yeah, no, that's essentially how when I explain it to individuals I'm working with too, it's a lot of them know about like that second metabolic threshold. So we'll say that or instead of critical speed, but yeah, essentially just like we know that the most resilient or the most durable distance Especially, there's a lot in cycling. I don't know if the, the research exists as much in runners and marathoners, but it's proposed that it's probably a similar mechanism that they have a resistance for that threshold to decay over time throughout, mm-hmm. like for example, a two-hour event. Yeah, and I think I think that kind of blows people's minds sometimes because they're like, "Wait a minute, you're telling me my critical power is actually not a static metric; it's a dynamic metric, and it changes depending on how fast 
I've been going for how long I've been going is like, the answer is yes. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. So you could be running, you know, say you're running at, uh, you know, your marathon pace or something like that, you know, that your, or your, your marathon goal is, is a sub three hour marathon. Cause you want to get a Boston qualifier and you know that your second threshold is pretty close to that, uh, that marathon pace. You start running at the beginning of your marathon. And then, you know, based on if you're fueling correctly, if your uh, muscles are getting fatigued, if you have higher type one versus type two fibers, that critical speed, that speed that you should be able to run your marathon without fatiguing is going to actually go down. And if it goes down to the extent that the speed you're running is higher than that pace you're sustaining, you're eventually going to get into uh, the severe exercise intensity domain, which means that you're you're running on borrowed time, essentially. You're eventually going to fatigue because that tipping point is from sustainable to unsustainable. And when you hit that unsustainable portion, you're, you, you only have a certain amount of time before you actually have to slow down and walk. And I think that's what we see probably with a lot of people who, you know, go out, they think they're at a steady pace. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, 20 miles into it, they're hitting the, hitting the wall. They have to walk and slow down and other things like that. It's because their merit, their true critical speed for that marathon has become so low that they were running faster than it. And then they, you know, ultimately reach fatigue in the middle of the marathon. Yeah, I think that's the key point. I was actually just talking to a very talented marathoner around here uh, about durability. He's like, well, it makes a lot of sense because everyone knows mile three doesn't feel the same as mile 18. But mm -hmm. like, how do you actually put words into it or describe that? And I think what you brought up is a really important thing that isn't always thought about that most individuals digress like thresholds or these speed or like yeah like the metabolic these metabolic markers there are there's they're not stagnant right they mm -hmm. move over time and on a day-to-day -day basement but especially like with fatigue like throughout a very long duration event they're going to move and i think for me the key point is that as you alluded to if someone starts below this critical speed critical power but over time via whatever glycogen depletion like changes in motor unit recruitment patterns other elements of fatigue cause that this threshold to decay and then all of a sudden we're running above it like you said we're running on borrowed time we're gonna have to slow mm -hmm. down and that's inherently gonna affect marathon or long distance biking performance to the point where you're just gonna have to stop and you're not gonna be able to keep up that pace so it's obviously an, a pretty important metric to know especially for those longer duration events and i think the thing that is interesting where we do see some underlying potentially correlations between like so like the classic models of endurance performance or vo2 max running economy efficiency whatever bike efficiency mm -hmm. and um then the threshold fractional utilization whatever, whatever word you want to use <laughs> and it actually seems that the three of these are there potentially is some relationships between those and durability but they're not actually explaining a lot of the durability metrics so it's almost like this fourth dimension or this fourth metric that may be unique and that really can dif differentiate actually some of the best distance athletes, which I think is really interesting how the other three typical markers of endurance performance aren't exactly 100% going to be able to explain it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's always whenever people try to make these models of endurance performance, you know, it always includes VO2 max, uh, intensity at second threshold or critical power, critical speed, functional threshold power, whatever the heck you want to call it, because it does get confusing um, and efficiency values. But it still leaves room for uh, room for explanation like these 
when you when you have those three variables, it doesn't give you a hundred percent of the uh, you know of the variance predicted. So there has to be something else along those lines. And just kind of scrolling through this paper, uh, you know, like there there's been really good studies that have looked at uh, you know the the ability to or you know your critical power based on um, an estimate, a three minute all out test, and you know pre or an arrested condition, you know, the, the critical power is about 24 watts higher than in a, in a fatigue, uh, you know, a, a fatigue condition where somebody has done, you know, like two hours of moderate intensity exercise. So we would say, you know, maybe zone two, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit faster than zone two. Um, so that's a, that's an 8% difference in critical power or predicted critical power, you know, from, just from two hours worth of what we think is easy work, right? And, you know, if you ask anybody, or not anybody, but if you if you ask people who say, hey, I'm going to have you do some zone two work, most of the time, if they've never done zone two work before, they're like, oh, this is super easy. Like, I don't even feel tired. I'm not like, whatever. But the thing is, is you're actually going to get, you're actually going to get fatigued and it's going to reduce your, your critical power. Um, sometimes, to the detriment that it would actually, you know, be be affecting your performance if you really tried to do something hard afterwards. And this comes into play, you know, maybe maybe it's not super important for individuals who are, you know, just running a half marathon or doing a marathon or, or I, I think a mar- marathon would be there, but uh, certainly in the half Ironman, Ironman, uh, you know, ultra marathon sort of scene, this gets super super important. The longer you can delay that decline the the better off you're going to be because even for example if you're exercising below your critical power if that critical power is coming down then you're exercising at a higher and higher percent of that critical power so it's going to be a larger stress on your body and exactly like you were saying jonah if you have somebody who is or if you ask anybody mile three if you're running the same pace does not feel the same as mile 24 in a mile or in a marathon it, it always feels harder. And I think that's exactly it. That's one of the reasons is the this idea that, you know, durability does play into it. And we're we're just kind of this this is kind of a new concept that's been coming out, but it's it's one of those things that I think in the future is going to be very, very important to actually be able to measure. No, I couldn't agree more. I think especially like I think the literature that exists now, most of it looks at that two hour mark. Mm-hmm. So essentially like any kind of event that theoretically takes place longer than two hours it's probably gonna have relevance but no as you alluded to like the longer longer events the ultras the tries that's where it's gonna have the most um importance and even if like you said an event takes place well below that critical power but the critical power does decrease if we're still taking the sport is taking place at a higher percentage of that critical power marker which it would if it goes down it's still gonna put a larger physiological stress on the body which i think is a really interesting point and so i think that is a good segue to kind of talk about how do you test it which we talked about a little bit earlier and i think that's i think that's probably why it's taken so long or why this metric has essentially come up later than some of these other classical metrics because things like vo2 max lactate threshold economies efficiencies we've been able to measure for a bit of time pretty Mm -hmm. easily and we have pretty good ways of going about that now but durability is a tough one because essentially who's going to get someone to do a classic step test guard and run and bike for two hours and then do another step test that's probably not always too feasible that would be the ideal way to measure it 
So I think that's, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. If you have, like, I have some ideas in my head about theoretically how you would test it. And you can look at some of the research now about some of them are just doing like a three minute all out power, critical power test after like a very long two hour ride, for example, which to me makes sense. So I think it is an interesting point. It's like, okay, there's people trying to go about measuring it in different ways, which like from a mechanistic physiological standpoint makes sense. But I think for the research to get better and for us to really understand it, you probably need to have one uniform way to quantify it and for us to agree that this is probably going to be the best way to go about it and really gauge it in an athlete. Yeah. I, th- I think with, with any testing, right, you, you just have to pick something and you kind of have to say, does it, does it fit what I'm trying to actually test? And if so, is it repeatable for, for my athletes, for example, and uh, running, running is so tough because there's so many other variables at play. So I'm just going to, uh, you know, kind of, kind of pick cycling for now, because I think cycling is a lot more compare or a lot more controllable. So for example, if we really wanted to test somebody's uh, durability, resilience, whatever you want to call it, and I think we're going to need that. We're going to need to come up with like an actual standard, uh, standard nomenclature for it too. So we don't run into this issue where we have, you know, like our second threshold can be called lactate threshold, ventilatory threshold, FTP, critical power, Six different critical names. speed. Eight, yeah, exactly. And then how you determine it is like totally different. So we either need to say durability or we need to say resilience. I think resilience is a little bit better um, because it kind of encompasses a little bit more of the fatigue thing. Durability is like uh, you can bounce from one thing to another. And I, I, I don't think durability really, really gets it all, you know, there. So I'm going to use resilience from, from here on out. Um, but so how I would test it is, yeah, I would do exactly what, what you were saying. I would have, you know, my, my athlete do, some sort of simulated ride, whether that's a that's a two hour uh, work bout at uh, say half Ironman or Ironman pace, or maybe even a three hour work bout of uh, Ironman half Ironman pace with all of their uh, fueling, like essentially a race condition, because that's what I really want to know is like like what uh, if we're doing something like really the durability, damn it, the the resilience comes into play with our our race specificity. So you want to do something that's going to simulate race specificity, and then you can use a surrogate like a three-minute all-out test. You can say, okay, do your warm-up, do a three-minute all-out test, and then do your two to three hours of sports-specific work with uh, proper hydration, proper nutrition, those sort of things, and then do a three-minute all-out test at the end, and then see you know where where their critical power uh, goes from. Um, I think that would be the most economical in terms of time. Um, and, you know, the three minute all out test is, is absolutely brutal, but at the same time, it's better than doing a 45 minute step test at the end of, uh, or at the beginning and at the end of a two hour, you know, workout, right? No, I agree. I think that's how it would go about it too. I think it works well in cycling. I don't know how well the three minute all out test works in running. Obviously there's a little bit more variables at play with regards to like the high mechanical stress and actually getting some of the runners to complete that test is mm-hmm. definitely difficult. And I think it's been more studied and running. But yeah, that's how I would go about doing it too. For example, the cycling is a really good example. The three minutes before, do whatever the two-hour, three-hour ride with race day conditions because that's what we care about it the most. And then also looking at essentially the three minutes after and conduct the same three-minute test after, look at the decay, the critical power. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's like similar to some of the studies they did where they looked at like the juniors compared to like the world-class cyclers, cyclers. Yeah. And that's where they really saw that, like, hey, there may be something here in this durability where VO2 max, threshold, whatever efficiency doesn't really separate them. But what does separate them is the decay and critical power pre and post two-hour intervention and that the world-class cycles, that's something that really differentiated them, that they had the ability to really maintain high, their critical power to a higher level. Yeah. Something, the one time, or the few examples I have seen been running, like one of the one that was really interesting, and they considered this like a resilience metrics, where they looked at the decoupling of pace to heart rate. Mm-hmm. Yes. Essentially throughout say. the marathon. And what they found is that the people who performed a marathon, like, I guess we should probably just cover decoupling first. So decoupling is essentially looking at a ratio of an external load marker. For example, in this case, an external load would be output. So like how fast my pace is, how fast I'm running a marathon. An internal load marker is the physiological response, which is very common in sports science. So heart rate in this sense would be the actual physiological response we're measuring. So from like watch data, and I think it might have been heart rate stop data too. They essentially looked at uh, marathoners and marathoners who finished at or who had better marathon times, better performance versus ones who had slower times or worse performance. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that the better marathoners had less decoupling, especially after I think like mile 18 is how they actually defined it. And by less decoupling, what they mean is that under conditions of fatigue, theoretically, as you run more and more, you would get more cardiac drift as you get tired. So for the same pace, my heart rate would be higher over time. Mm-hmm. So if at the first minute, maybe my heart rate's 150 for a six minute per mile pace for an easy example. My 18, now it's 165, 170. So my heart rate's gone up even though I'm not running any faster. Mm-hmm. And that's where that cardiac drift or decoupling comes in. Maybe it's like dehydration or other elements of fatigue that are essentially causing a larger physiological cost for the same output. So that would be an example of decoupling or vice versa. Maybe my heart rate stays the same, but I just have to run at a slower speed to maintain mm-hmm. that heart rate. That's, an, that's how else the ratio could be decoupled. And so essentially what they found, from my understanding, is that the best marathoners they were able to maintain that pace without their heart rate going up as much. So less cardiac drift Well, the marathoners who finished slower, who really teared off towards the end of the marathon, their heart rate essentially rose to higher levels for that same pace. So they had less decoupling. So I think that's another interesting, because like decoupling or like looking at the ratio of external to internal load, specifically pace versus heart rate is something that comes up a lot in the sports science research. So I think that is another interesting way to like in the field, potentially look at it, like record someone's like, hey, like this is your external pace and this is what was happening to your heart rate. It is another interesting way to potentially gauge it like in the field, actually. I don't know what your thoughts on, if you've seen that paper, what your thoughts on it are. Yeah, no, I I saw that paper as well. And I I was thinking about that exact idea. So, you know, as opposed to actually having to do a test or something like that, again, race specific, you know, you're going to, you, if you, if you have a good coach, you should be doing race specific work. So you know, you should be able to tell, okay, at race pace, this is my, this is my decoupling, um, in a sense. And you could do that with, with cycling too, right? You could say, okay, well, I'm, I'm planning on doing my race at 210 Watts. How, how does my heart rate decouple from my power output during that 210 Watts over the course of two, three hours? Uh, and, and, and it, it then takes out the need for another test However, the reference markers, like we don't have reference numbers, right? Like we know generally like the categories of like a high VO2 max. Um, We know generally the the categories of high uh, running economy, high, uh, you know, second threshold, those sort of things. Um, We, because this is such a new metric, we don't have a, 
Well, I guess I guess they started to in in that study, and I can't remember the exact yeah, they, numbers. Yeah, they they like said some numbers about what would be like decoupling that would be acceptable or like not acceptable. Mm-hmm. It was a very small sample though, so I think what you're saying is correct. But we just don't have enough normative data yeah. to actually come to conclusions what to look for. But it potentially could be something to look at over time. But then obviously you have environmental factors that affect it, like heat and all those things. So yeah, it's a tougher one for me, the decoupling one, the ratio. But I still think it is interesting what they found. Yeah. I think, I think too, then, you know, it, it gives you that as the athlete, the ability to then say, okay, well, I'm going to be racing. Well, say for example, let's use Kona. Kona is a perfect example of this, right? Like heat, it's always hot in Kona. Like no matter when you race anything like that, yes, some, sometimes the wind will change. Sometimes you'll have, you know, uh, the cloudy conditions versus sunny conditions, but it's always going to be probably between 75 and 85 degrees with, I, I can't remember the exact uh, humidity, but when I went, I visited I was sweating everywhere I went. Um, you know, it's like I, I wore black t-shirts the entire time because, you know, then I wouldn't have the old man sweat, or at least I thought I was protecting from from people seeing the old man sweat. And it's it's one of those things. I, I live in a in a dry, a little bit higher altitude area. So my body was just like, yep, uh, you know, I, I it was it was more of a stress. So anytime I would do any sort of riding, any sort of running, my heart rate was higher. But if I was going to actually go and do Ironman Kona, I would, I should, if I was appropriately training, have numbers uh, like heart rate, heart rate data and power data from training inside at the correct temperature in the correct humidity. So I should be able to say, okay, well, over time, my, uh, my heart rate decoupling is actually shrinking which means my durability mm. is getting better. And this is, yeah. I, I think, I think right now, since we don't have that normative data, it's more, and just in general, it's more important to, to measure those changes over time, just like it's important to measure changes in VO2 max changes in economy changes in threshold over time to get an idea. Is my training actually making me uh, better and more resilient and physiologically stronger? Or am I just kind of spinning my wheels and I'm not progressing here? No, I think that's an excellent point. Um, let me just side note, I th- I've been pretty surprised how many high-level athletes don't have a lot of training log analysis. Uh, they don't record good data about their training and training under different conditions so they can compare it over time. But that's how I would go about it too. Like Again, any good race prep is going to put you in very environmentally and race-specific demands because mm-hmm. like specificity still is important. And comparing those over time, um, I think would be interesting to see if that decoupling does shrink. And that could be a good indicator of potential adaptation. And like you said, I think it is important because what we are seeing is that some of these typical indicators are a great way to quantify durability. That we do do some specific testing for it over time just to make sure that is the adaptation where mm-hmm. maybe some individuals that really is the limiting factor. So if that is the adaptation we're going for, that we're actually quantifying it and show that the training is helping. Which probably brings up the point of like, how do you train durability? All right. So how do you, how do you actually train durability? What's the, what's the best way to go about it? I think, um, you know, kind of, it, it all comes down to sports specificity. Exactly. What we were talking about, like, if you want to get better at running a marathon, you have to train marathon pace. I'm not saying go and run a marathon because for a lot of people, it's probably an inappropriate amount of, of intensity and volume, but you know, you see, these, uh, like I, I'm going to use Ironman athletes just cause I was out in Kona recently and I was just like so floored by how, how impressive these athletes were. Like, you know, some of them, 
you know, the people who are a little bit more seasoned veterans and stuff like that, they get across the finish line and they look like they could go run another, you know, Ironman or something like that. I'm sure they couldn't, but you know, it, it's it, over time, right? You build up that, that durability and that resilience just from exposing yourself to that stress over and over and over again. And I think for a lot of us where it starts is simulated uh, race specific training which, you know, for a marathon could be any, anywhere from a half marathon to, uh, you know, maybe 18 miles or something like that within training. Um, and then actually doing marathons and then repeatedly doing those marathons over and over and over again, it's going to make your body more resilient to the, the damage and the fatigue that's going to be accumulated throughout that run. Um, I also think this is kind of where zone two training comes into play uh, a lot is zone two training gives you the ability to increase your volume and you know if you're getting fitter increase your intensity over time and by increasing your volume you're increasing your exposure you know to uh whether it's cycling or running you know whatever the motion of that sport actually is um so i think i think it's i think that's where like the zone two training really can come in is the ability to uh, increase your resilience but also that sport specificity of yeah. training no, I think like the one thing that does seem to come up time and time again is volume, right? Mm-hmm. Like you think about, so what's the difference between like a world-class cycler and a junior cycler? The world-class has been able to accumulate a ton more volume over time. And you look at a lot of the research coming out, it's like, okay, so what are the recent trends in endurance performance? Increases in volume, like a lot more volume, some more race-specific volume, but essentially like like you just look at the guy who ran, uh, you know, Kipton just ran the 235 marathon and they're like 185 miles a week peak, which is yeah. insane. But no matter what, it's just like a microcosm of what's happening in endurance sports, which is insane volume. And it seems like from some of the research that potentially volume could be the indicator or like could be the main stimulus to really improve durability, which, which, sorry, resilience, which makes sense if you think about it. And I think you brought up another excellent point. It's like accumulating time at a specific pace, Mm -hmm. which I think is for some reason underappreciated at the moment. Like you're going to become the most efficient. Oh, the most economical, like we know from that research too, at the paces you train at, whether it's running or cycling. So that's probably a good way to improve your resilience at that pace as well, whatever mm-hmm. the race demands are. And then the other idea, which does make sense to me a lot of what I do like is put yourself in situations where like you look at some of the training logs of Kachogi or some of these best marathoners now, if like that would again force you to get more durable, like uh, whatever, like, sorry, like progressive runs, like long runs. Well, like at the end of the long run, like you have an intense, like some intensity at the end, or like a few mm-hmm. miles of like closer to the threshold or whatever, just like longer runs, longer durations, where at the end you're pushing it somehow. And I think if you think about like, hey, what's really going to push to resilience, it's it can, like training that. Like think about mm-hmm. the testing. How would you train that? Like go out for a two-hour run and then at the end essentially like push it for a little bit or have like a pr- progression run at the end of it. So yeah, that's another interesting idea from that standpoint too about how you potentially could train it. But yeah, I don't think it could be understated how important like volume is. Yeah. Yeah. I think in, you know, like right now, the, the big thing is polarized training, right? People, people are doing, you know, 80, 80% of their workouts at, uh, you know, zone two or lower, and then trying to do 20% of their workouts, you know, it, it, with some level of, of pretty high intensity. And I think, I think it's good, you know, for things like base building. I think I think 80-20, the 80-20 approach is really, really effective for base building. But where I think the downfalls are and research supports this is that the closer you get to your race, the more sports specific you have to be. 
So you have to move that high intensity stuff down because you have to get exactly. more race specific. And maybe, and you know, and, and you can still keep your 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 zone two work because you know you want to continue to accumulate volume. But you know, people there's there there was a guy on Reddit the other day who was like, yeah, during my base, I don't do any lactate training whatsoever. So I never touch my my second threshold. I never touch VO two max. Never do anything like that. And I I didn't have enough uh, time or patience to to you know, draft like what my response would be, but, uh, and he's probably not listening to this, but my response to that would say, if your goal is only to get good at zone two work, then yes, do all of your base training in the off season at zone two or lower. Don't do anything hard, but I can guarantee you 99.9% of people out there want to race a little bit harder than zone two. So keep that within your training regime, your entire see like your entire year like you don't have to do like you know you don't have to go crazy and do three threshold workouts in a week you could do one threshold workout in a week or do like a progressive uh you know long ride or long run once a week or something like that that's going to touch on that high intensity stuff and it's going to help maintain that higher intensity uh that higher intensity um you know sort of fitness without inhibiting your ability to then gain more volume because really that's what that's all that base is trying to do right is trying to help you gain more volume but the problem is is that if you're so uh you know so strict with just doing your your easy volume right then you're not going to build up that durability at that at that high at those higher paces that you're eventually going to need to race and yes the argument might be oh well as soon as you start to do vo2 max work or lactate work or whatever you want to call it or, you know, like, or whatever intensity, um, it, there's only a certain amount of workouts that you can do before you have to rest and then recover, um, you know, take, take some time off in the season and stuff like that. But I, I, I've always been a fan of how Steve Magnus approaches it at where he says, you know, training is kind of like a, like a, like an equalizer board or an EQ board on your, on your audio sort of stuff. Everything is always engaged at, at the same time. It's just to what extent are they engaged? So during their base, how I would see it is, you know, you have your, your, your volume way up, your intensity a little bit lower, but you still have a little bit of say that sprint work going on, that jumping work going on, that power work going on, that, uh, you know, VO2 max work every once in a while, maybe that threshold work or that sports specificity work. It's just not as prevalent as when you're trying to say, develop your VO2 max or develop your threshold. Um, so, so I would say, I would, I would honestly, I would say that that might actually be one of the reasons why, if you're, if you're one of those individuals who's like, well, I keep doing base training, but then I, year to year, I never really get that much better because every year you're trying to rebuild what you lost during the off season by not just focusing on it a little bit. And durability could be one of those really, really big things in there. Yeah, no, I think you brought up an excellent point. Um, I think the 80 20 reward sometimes could be overemphasized. Like, there's definitely a time and a place. And we know that, like, a high volume of whatever zone two or that low intensity work, that's important. Like, that seems to be like something that's very consistent among the elites. Like, they're accumulating a ton of easy volume. But at the same time, as you alluded to, like, a lot of, like, especially like distance based events or like marathon, half marathon, whatever. 
is occurring between that first and second lactate threshold, especially if you're an elite, it's occurring pretty close to that second lactate threshold. Mm -hmm. So if you want to train for the specificity of your event, especially as you get closer, like you better spend time training there. And that that's like how you mentioned is exactly how I go about it. Like Steve Magnus, like when I could, I'm going to mess up uh, Kanata, his last name, like those guys who are essentially like an undulating or whatever, a periodization model where for me, that's the way I go about it. Like most of the variables are always present, but based on where we are at the time of the year, different variables or different physiological qualities are emphasized. And like early on away from the race, it's like a lot of its volume to set us up to support later training. So like those easy aerobic adaptations with some of the sprint stuff, like some sprinting stuff, a few VO2 max stimuluses, and then it's essentially a funnel. As we get closer and closer to the race, like there's still a lot of low volume work, but we start moving a lot of intensity to accumulate more volume between those two thresholds and a specific specifically at a race pace right where like early on it may be for me more about like specific physiological variables like vo2 max your first metabolic threshold as you move closer a lot of it becomes more race specific so we go a lot off paces and then it just naturally you accumulate more volume between those two thresholds which is going to be more specific for example the marathon race demands mm-hmm. and i think you brought up a great point like it's probably relatively specific to the paces you train at, or I, I think so. Like, yeah, the, like the low, easy volume work is going to help with durability, but then or resilience, but also resilience at your race pace. Like, you may be missing that out, missing out on that if you're not actually accumulating time at the race pace. Yeah. So I think it's important that, like, yeah, the eighty twenty is going to help support or build that base, but also like as I get closer to the race, like I don't even know if it's more pyramidal, but there's just a lot more accumulation of volume at a race pace, and I think that's going to help um, with some of the resilience adaptations but also like drive home some higher volume intensity adaptations which are going to help with some of the thresholds yeah yeah i think i think this is kind of where uh economy comes into play as well um and i I think i see a lot of people they're like oh you have to do you know zone two work in order to get your economy up but i think the challenge with that is that if you do a lot of zone two work if you do a lot of really really easy running right? For example, you're going to get really efficient at that easy run. And then if you never do running at your, at your marathon specific pace, you're really never going to become efficient at that marathon specific pace. No, so, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's all, it's all rules of specificity. It always comes back to, <laughs> yeah. I, I always say like the, the three big things, specificity, consistency, and progression are yeah. always like the things that I focus on first. And we're, you know, when Jonah and I have these conversations, we're talking about optimizing you know physiology right we're not talking about oh the person who's never run before who's just you know just starting because that they're actually the easiest people to coach if you keep them consistent and you get them to do a little bit of specific work they're going to get better it's 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 the individuals who are like the uh the age groupers who have been training for a while or like those individuals who are like uh, I, I want to make the leap from, you know, good amateur to, to pro or, you know, something along those lines that need to start taking into account all of these little nuances within training. And I just see, you know, there, there's so many like, like people who are just like, oh, well, I'm in like the zone two group, you know, like you, everyone likes like, I bet, I guess, put themselves into silos. It's like the same with like diet or exercise interventions. Oh, I'm a runner. I'm a cyclist oh, I'm a, you know, I, I eat paleo, I eat vegetarian, I eat carnivore, you know, high carb, low carb, whatever it is. Everybody likes to have a label, but I think the best individuals take the benefits from, from each of those different things, similar within training, right? 
there's benefits to sports specific training. There's benefits to high intensity interval training. There's benefits to long, slow distance. Take the benefits of those, try to emphasize those, and then you'll become, you'll start to become an even better athlete than you, than you thought could happen by just sticking to like, Oh, well, I only do high intensity stuff or I only do low intensity stuff. Like it's, it's always a, there's always a gray zone and there's always a mix between it, you know, in order to actually reach optimal. No, I agree. And I think they all have their time and place based on where you are in the year. And honestly, mm-hmm. like the athletes who I've helped or who I feel like have had the most success, whether it's lower level performance or they have high performance, not lower level performance, but they're new to running or, and then runs who have higher performance goals. There is some variability in their program and variability that makes sense based on where they are in the year. Mm-hmm. Like the ones who aren't successful, I would say their program is very monotonous, just the same stimulus over and over again. And we know if someone applies the same stimulus, you're going to get a smaller return on investment. And I think the last point is you brought up, like it applies to economy too. Like people are like, oh no, to improve running economy, I got to do a lot of long, long, slow, easy runs. It's like, yeah, that could potentially help, but you're going to become the most efficient at the paces you run at. So if you want to improve mm-hmm. your marathon economy, run at your marathon pace <laughs> to make it simple. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it, it really is. It's as simple yet as complicated as, as this whole conversation has been. And, you know, I want I want to encourage people to, you know, challenge whatever paradigm you have. So if you, you know, say, say you, you've been listening to a lot of Peter Atia and, and Inigo San Milan, and you say, okay, well, they say that zone two training is like the best training I can possibly do. I challenge you then to go and look at some research on high intensity interval training, because there is a lot of research that shows that high intensity interval training is just as potent as stimulus, if not more than, you know, like that zone two training for improving things like mitochondrial function, capillarization, uh, central variables like uh, cardiac output, um, left ventricular hypertrophy, other things like that. Uh, and when you start, when you, then when you start to say, okay, well, huh, now, now, there's two sides of the aisle that are claiming that, you know, they're the best, you know, for whatever outcome it is, then you have to start problem solving in your brain and say, okay, well, what's going to be the best for me? What's going to be the the, the best way to approach, you know, whatever training it is, maybe I could take some zone two stuff, because I've never done that in my life. I come from maybe a CrossFit background, what's emphasized high intensity interval training all the time. So maybe that zone two training is actually what's going to be the, the greatest stressor to elicit the most response, or maybe you've never done high intensity interval training because, uh, you know, you're afraid that it's going to ruin your base or something like that. If you've never done it, there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of the stress being applied and you adapting to it. Um, and if you've never exercised before, the good thing is, is that whatever you do, as long as you're not, you know, injuring yourself and overdoing it, you're going to adapt and get better. That's why people like who come to CrossFit, get better generally for the first like two to three months because it's such a novel stimulus for them that they're like, Oh, every time I touch the barbell, I'm, I'm PRing. And then the three month mark comes around and then they and then, you know, they've, they've kind of maxed out those adaptations. So I, that, that's a little bit of a, a, a long winded way of just saying, you know, everything, you, everything in the proper dose needs to be within your training plan go from less specific to more specific throughout the year. And I really like the way that Jonah put it, where you said in the beginning of the year, you focus on those the development of those physiological variables. And then as we get closer to race, you, you kind of say, okay, well, those aren't important anymore. What we want to do is we want to 
develop race-specific qualities. And from the race-specific qualities, then the athlete, you know, can kind of hone hone that edge, hone, hone that sword into something that's really sharp so then they can actually perform on race day. Um, so so I think I think with that, I think that's, that was a really good discussion on, on durability and resilience. If you guys have any questions, reach out to me uh, on Instagram at critical02. Reach out to Jonah at uh, Jonah underscore J-A-R performance um, on Instagram. And if you're on uh, YouTube, uh, just comment down below with any questions you have on durability training or anything like that. Jonah and I are here to help people uh, and, you know, to help you uh, answer any and all questions on, uh, you know, physiology, testing, coaching, uh, those sort of things. So uh, we, we invite any and all questions. And with that, we'll catch you guys in the next one.